Hey friends, welcome to episode 16 of Writing in STEM, the podcast about young people in science. I'm Audrey Farrell. Uh, and I'm not Matt Murphy, as it turns out. Yeah, so Matt is off gallivanting in Europe and did not have the good decency to bring an entire mic setup with him. And we don't want to bother him while he's traveling. So, today, it is just me hosting, and I have the lovely Jan joining me. Hello. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I'm a, I'm a grad student friend of Audrey's, and, uh... <laughs> you want to say generally your field? Right, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grad student doing comp sci, which is computer science, um... And also big math hours. Big math hours. Well, moderately sized math hours. Yeah, because you, your your undergrad was math and comp sci, yeah? Yeah, and some electrical. I'm sort of all over the place. Yeah. I, I, I like to have a... A finger in many pies. Yes. Which I... It's an excellent phrase. It's an excellent phrase, but then I think about it too hard and I'm like, I don't want fingers in my pies. <laughs> well, it's... They're not your pies. They're other people's pies that you're putting your own fingers in. But then, like, isn't that a little rude? they can deal with it you okay. gotta you gotta you gotta live your own life yeah fingers in many pies pro tip do not actually stick fingers in other people's pies or else they might get no. upset yeah. health concerns health concerns um sanitation yeah. kind of food safety yeah anyway um <laughs> so yeah so i i uh i, I make bad puns and wordplay um occasionally i what else do i do I don't know. It doesn't need to be that much. Honestly, just the fact that you're a grad student in comp sci is That's probably, probably enough. enough. Right? Yeah. I am mysterious and need no further description. And, yeah. Uh, God, that sounds so grandiose. I, yeah. What, what is this podcast if not grandiose? All we do is philosophize about being science. Pontificate also. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. Good word. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably enough. Um, main thing, you're a guest, so we'll probably... How do you introduce yourself and some of the things that you do? Oh, that's God. Cool. I don't know what I do. Well, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. But, like, generally, you can speak in vaguest terms possible, but... <laughs> you underestimate how vague I can be. But, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to... I guess. This this is a thing I've had trouble with in the past, is, like, mm. people ask, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's the elevator pitch thing. It's the elevator pitch, God. Which, I guess it's, Honest yeah. to God, I feel like I should have my elevator pitch by now. And, and to some extent, I do. Mm. I'm a kind of public speaker, where if I have it planned out, I can't really do it very well. But I'm I'm reasonably good at winging it. But do you, like, keep a few, like... A few points. Few point, points. Yeah, keep a few um, points, keep a few... The broad strokes... Or even, like, a theme that you want to... Honestly, I haven't given my elevator pitch very much. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I, I'm not at the point in my life where I've needed it very much. I, I feel like I've given it once or twice at, like, conferences. I'd be like, here's who I am. But it's usually because I have something meaningful to contribute to an existing conversation. And mm -hmm. I want to get there. But I'm like, let me establish who I am first. And then let me tell you the, this idea I had about your work while you were giving a presentation. Like, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know cool all right yeah so wait should i do that like now or um we can do it now we can we can roll into it uh ro it rolling matter. might be rolling might be nice <laughs> rolling might be nice um what are other things we do it's interesting because we i don't know if we've had a guest yet that's never heard the podcast yeah i uh how dare you <laughs> i'm i'm uncultured swine I it's know. just uh we're we're what's, what's the podcast called it might be good to know that 
Yeah, it's sprouting in stem. Fuck, I just asked that. Yes, yeah. you're right. I do, I do know that. Yeah. Um, um, and what is our, our pitch for this podcast? It's generally, mm-hmm. we want to focus on, well, we're a science podcast, but we don't focus on the science. We focus on, like, living as a person who does science. More so. So we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about... Um, we've talked about scientific coding and learning to do that. We had a whole... Like programming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, We had a whole po- episode about, like, soft skills that you don't get taught as a scientist mm. because you're not expected to do like them. Like general soft skills or scientist soft skills? Scientist soft, soft skills, like, um, like, LaTeX was one that came up. Yeah, that's it. Because no one teaches you how to do it, and then you're just expected to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're lucky, someone will push you to do it. Yeah. And but, yeah. and giving scientific presentations and, <coughs> um, like, conference mm. etiquette and, like, all those little things that you just end up needing to know and you have to learn yourself. Um, we, so we t- did an episode talking about that. Um, That's pretty cool. We've had some guests talking about things. We've talked about clubs. We've talked about coming from non-scientific backgrounds, like, when your family's not mm. science, but you are. We talked a lot about that because... Mm. That it me. Yep, that's uh, that's you. <laughs> um, but cool. We, yeah, we this is we. A cool topic. It's it's pretty casual, and it's mostly our goal is to, um, show a more human side of science, mm-hmm. in general. So, like, especially because both Matt and myself, we didn't come from scientific backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Like, just knowing who scientists are and what they do as like human beings, mm-hmm. and how they live their lives is something that we never got shown. So by non-scientist backgrounds, do you mean like uh, not highly educated or not academics? Not academics, not highly educated, or like highly educated in non-scientific like things. Like engineering things or, or doctory things. Or, or art things. Art things. For, in the That's case true. of my family. Yeah, like... Mm. Um, like That's true. Yeah, so so I don't have anyone in my immediate family that does like a- academics like research. Or, yeah. or really really science at all. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, my sister codes for, for game development, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And that's like engineering, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. It's, it's software engineering kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a lot of like art things as well, which is cool. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I've got an artsy family. I've got a super artsy family. Really? Everyone's painters and musicians and bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's not bullshit. It's wonderful, but, <laughs> but it makes me very much the odd one out. Yeah. The black um, sheep. I know. I, when I was a kid, I was so obnoxious. Jesus. I was such a dramatic fuck mm-hmm. when I was like 12 that I always called myself um, a chartreuse sheep in a family of black sheep. Because... That's funny. In a in a societal context, my family is full of black sheep because yeah. they're all like artisan kind of people. Mm-hmm. And then there's me, <laughs> who's just weird... Yeah, so I, I was thinking about a few things we could talk about. I was thinking mm-hmm. we we could talk about um I don't know how to phrase it, which I probably should learn. Um, like diversity of knowledge, if that makes sense. So because like multidisciplinary? Or? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like things that you and I usually talk about is not so to say science things we like we, we keep a very diverse set of information in our weird brains that's true yeah and i've I, that's sort of how i approach learning mm-hmm. is like 
learn all the things from all the places. So yeah, that's a... Yeah, so yeah. I thought it might be fun to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like we can... It's it's easy to get pigeonholed into thinking about like physics all day or math all day or your code all day. Mm -hmm. But you and I, especially when we're together, I think do a pretty good job of yeah breaking that's... from that habit. Even though it does... It circles around. Mm -hmm. But... But, like, I mean, it's good to think about science things, just as, you know, as long as there's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, like, me being me, and Matt's not here to police me on just nonstop <laughs> talking about my arts background. Mm -hmm. But, um... Does he give you shit for that, or...? No, he doesn't give me shit for it. It's just, I, I circle back to it so often, and he's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but, um... Now you have a, a fresh I know. audience. Yeah. I, it feels weird. It honestly feels so odd that Matt's not here. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an interesting episode. Um, he's gallivanting throughout Europe on, it, on nice. a solo mission without a microphone <laughs> or the time and desire to record a podcast with me. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not bitter. Whatever. But um, as someone who grew up in such an artsy family, mm -hmm. I think it gives me an advantage in that I don't approach science single-mindedly. Mm. Whereas I feel like, especially like... You and I both generally stay in pretty pretty hard science in terms of like um, environment or yeah in terms of the environment not not like difficult science but like hard science in the sense of like yeah pure pure mathematics and pure fundamental physics and avoiding all those pesky people and just yeah. focusing on the <laughs> yeah. like uh, our the human interaction that happens within our fields is niche and incomprehensible to most. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fact that despite that, we both have a pretty diverse set of interests besides the thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that we do is it's, I wouldn't say it's to, like explicitly uncommon. Yeah. Cause I figure a lot of people probably have, you know, yeah. at least some. Yeah. But it's unpublicized. <laughs> it's not what you see mm -hmm. when, you, when at least in terms of public communication, when a like a theoretical physicist or a pure mathematician or whatever goes and communicates with the public, it's not about their other interests. Yeah, it's not like I go skiing on yeah on weekends. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, pretty cool. You're on like one of those weird documentaries to tell talk about like I feel like there's always a physicist in weird context about like why this guy can dive from this height without dying or like it's always like an athlete and then they bring a physicist in and they're like tell us why this athlete can do this thing and how they could be faster and they're like well actually it's all about torque and conservation of angular momentum and like anyone who's taken a year of physics can tell you that but they bring in physicists to talk about it so they're, they're talking about physics or math or whatever in a very basic way and they're not communicating kind of the more human element of being a part of that field which is generally the goal of this podcast so i figured it might be fun to talk that about. is yeah that's circling around uh Ooh, look at me nice professional we're on episode 16 practice makes so perfect i'm um, used to it <laughs> well so the the thing where like scientists hmm. do other activities which are more like interacting with people Mm -hmm. But that's, like, not connected to their field. Yeah. And so it sounds like what you're, you're talking about is the, like, like other fields like art or business or philosophy. You're talking a lot about people and how they interact 
mm-hmm. and how they interact with the things you're discussing in your field. Mm. Um, is that sort of what you're trying yeah, to get at, or like, is it a different? I think of it as if, like, when you're a painter, mm-hmm. me, I'm going to get hate from my actual related painters who actually don't listen to this podcast anyways who cares but when you're a painter you draw from things that aren't painting for for your inspiration Mm. like you don't paint about painting you paint about the human condition yeah you don't write about writing and so when you enter uh like stem careers and your job is so focused on removing the human element Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting how that develops the personality of the scientist. I see. Like, I had a a fascinating conversation the other day about about ethical concerns as a scientist mm. from the scale of like of how your work directly impacts human beings. So. Let me just go on a little rant for a moment. But I had a conversation with a, a, a clinical researcher in psychology, and she was talking about how her research, the ethical concerns are very direct mm-hmm. because you have human subjects in your trials. Yeah. And but it's also science. So you have to take something as complex as like mental health and mental illness and find ways to quantify it in ways that are less likely to be biased but it's like the human condition and so that's really hard so um in psychology there's something called the dsm Do you... yeah yeah the, there's like numbers of it and... yeah um dsm five or seven or something is the one we're on mm-hmm. but well, god if i can fucking remember what it actually stands for but medicine is probably the m diagnostics yeah who knows i don't know um but there was some way we could find out i know the internet wouldn't it be great um so So much effort i know um Mm -hmm. but essentially like it will have under under depression it will have like 15 bullet points of symptoms and you have to have a certain number out of the 15 in order to technically be depressed and, like, all these things that are put into place institutionally to remove, um, to add in, like, quantifiable data. And so, as, as a, like, a clinical psychologist doing research, she was talking to me about um, trying to create surveys that could produce quantifiable data mm-hmm. from human subjects without, like, making it miserable for them. Because no one likes taking a survey where they're trying to quantify your your mental health or um she was dealing with like uh developmental issues um mm. and and an intellectual disability and stuff like that like you it's so hard to create a an ethical quantifiable non-biased yeah, uh, yeah. determination of people's mental status so like the ethical concerns within psychology are so direct mm-hmm. and the human element is so clear Mm-hmm. in all the work that you're doing but then when you are like a physicist mm-hmm. or you're working in cybersecurity, or you're doing anything yeah, more it's... abstract it's so hard to think about <laughs> where that actually comes in mm-hmm. it's all it's many steps removed from yeah so what we we touched on that was fascinating to to her was how as a physicist 
part of my ethical concern, besides like the classic, I need to remove bias from my research, which is everyone's concern as scientists. In physics? In physics, yeah. Um, like not jumping to conclusions. Oh, well, like that's like academic bias. Not yeah, like... academic bias. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, personal bias, I guess, doesn't really... I mean, my personal bias in physics is that I'm right. Yeah. That my assumption about why the data is what it is mm-hmm. is that I'm correct. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's in my mind, the personal bias, bias that could affect yeah. my work. It's not like I'm like biased against certain scientific results for mm-hmm. people publishing them or something. No. Um, but we were talking about the ethical concern of working in fields that are highly weaponizable. Yep. Because it's, it's a different way of thinking about ethics. Because it's, um, for something like psychology, the ethical concern is immediate. Whereas, like, the physics that I do, mm-hmm. it does, if, if it becomes something immensely dangerous, it's not clear until it's, like, too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to an extent, obviously. Because um, my, my advisor and I had a conversation about how it's part of his code as a scientist that he will never work on anything directly weaponizable. He avoids it. Um, and mm-hmm. in stuff like, uh, plasma physics, fusion, nuclear science, it's like mm-hmm. pretty easy to, to weaponize that shit. Don't know if you know, from, yep. uh, I, I mean, you know, some, some, some stories, rumors getting passed around about, uh, nuclear weapons. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's kind of under the, under the radar at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting ethical concern mm-hmm. that like, I I guess I I'd thought about but I'd never thought about seriously until until recently. Mm-hmm. Cuz we're kind of coming to um I, I don't know what you say like scientific maturity like arriving at us the, as people uh, or us, us as as humans. Us as people. Um cuz like you're you're in 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 grad school. Now. Yeah, yeah. And and like I've, I'm reaching the point where my work is is both interesting and significant, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> it's really nice, but a yeah. lot like a lot of uh, it raises a lot of questions about your position as a scientist. Because mm-hmm. I feel like when, as soon as you start getting results as a young scientist, it's like uh, the immediate doubt of did I do it right, <laughs> and then you start thinking about like am i actually a scientist now that i have like results that other people that are scientists with phd's are interested in so that make my work important and did i do it rigorously enough for it to be good that it's important yeah there's uh, a lot of there's a lot of impostering yeah a lot of that so i was thinking about ethics this week mhm and the the interesting interplay between between like the the human condition and hard mm-hmm. science and research yeah it's interesting uh the like the sort of weaponizability and ethics mm-hmm. argument is like i mean you know if if you invented like you discovered the atomic nucleus or whatever the structure of the atom mm-hmm. it's really hard to connect that to like atomic bombs right because mm-hmm. you're, you're many you're many steps removed yeah um but actually working on building a bomb is i mean that's that's much clearer and Mm -hmm. so while it's really hard to reason about this you'll probably end up with a distribution where most people don't want to work on or you know like a lot of people won't want to work on weapons yeah uh because there it's like it's ethically clear Mm -hmm. that 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 might be kind of shitty um whereas if you're like 
working on things that seem probably weaponizable soon, well, it's harder to say, and so people have fewer qualms. Yeah. And so you'll get the sort of gradient of the closer you get to it, the 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 less supply there is of willing mm. researchers. Yeah. So there's at least a little bit of pressure <laughs> in that, right? You know, the, the uh, supply is lower, so you know, presumably the price of doing uh, more ethically sketchy research is going to be higher. Yeah. Um. So that's a thing. And I feel like in in places like physics and math, you have so many people, like researchers, that are there just for like the pure intellectual pursuit. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fundamental yearning for knowledge that's like so, it, it feels so profound and yeah. driving. But then... I, it's just weird to be into it for other reasons, really. Like I know. <laughs> like you're not in it for the money, presumably. Presumably. It's, uh, at the very least. Because there are easier ways to make much more ways, money. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure some people like mm. sell out or, yeah, yeah. I guess. I don't know much about that. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, it, but like. Within my field, so few people are there for any other reason mm-hmm. than, I just want to know more. <laughs> and so <laughs> the idea of taking their work and creating something destructive from it is, like, f- so foreign, mm. but at the same time so plausible because mm-hmm. it's happened. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, it's kind of that the the naive interest in just finding out more about the universe mm-hmm. without thinking that releasing that knowledge into the world could have repercussions you're not exactly happy with. Yep. And it's funny because, like, while I was in discussion with this this psychologist, mm-hmm. who's also done some, like, biomedical research as well, she's like, you know, it's fascinating how, in especially, like, physics... I mean, I'm going to say... Especially in physics a lot, because I'm a physicist and I'm a little biased and can only speak from my own experience. But um, everyone's so excited to share information. Yeah. Like, you find a cool result in physics, you want to scream it to the tops of your lungs, like, on a big hill. Mm-hmm. You want to mm-hmm. yodel about it. You want to tell absolutely everyone. You want to publish it as soon as possible. it's a cool thing. I found a cool thing. Look at the cool yeah, thing. And you, yeah, and like, it's, there's no restriction of the flow of information mm-hmm. among among physicists. And I feel like math and comp sci are generally the same way. The more yeah, you go towards, to like, be. software engineering, then things get a little more secretive. Mm-hmm. But um, but honestly, software engineering, it's not really science yeah. at that point. Yeah. It's, it's just building a thing using the science. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so it's it's um, completely different from things like medicine, which, like, medical research is still definitely science, but it's so... Is it more restrictive? It's so restrictive in the flow of information because everyone wants to be the one to find something. Oh, and, as in... And the one to sell their their research to pharmaceutical companies... And because it has oh. it has so much more direct impact to people's day to day lives mm-hmm. that I feel like you feel more of the general pressures of like uh, business and entrepreneurial attitude. It's more it. immediately marketable, or mm. yeah, I mean somethingable. Yeah, profitable. Yeah, yeah, that'll that's. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, like. You can do amazing things in physics and nothing changes about your salary. Yep. And there's actually, so I, in comp sci, I don't really know what the field looks like that well because mm. I'm 
Uh, you know, I'm very experienced, but uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I, so I, it seems to be that like there's this divide between going into industry mm. research and going into into academia research. Yeah, and industry research is like uh, working on much more immediate problems and much more immediately profitable problems because that's why it exists. Yeah, um, and you know, there's definitely. I think academia is where people go when they like want to work on the less profitable, more pure problems. Mm. And so there's that's why there's much more of that, the sharing and stuff. So there's this filtering. Yeah, and it feels like even within academia, you have a bit of a, a striation between mm -hmm. like experimentalists versus theorists and then like more people on the mm. engineering side versus on the design side. And mm -hmm. like the problems that I'm working on in physics feel like big physics problems but when you break it down to what i do day to day i feel more like an engineer mm -hmm. who's solving a problem that will save the department of energy a lot of money um and it, so it's interesting the way that it still even breaks down into the the more pure and less pure scientific questions mm -hmm. but one of my favorite things about about physics is that you take the big pure questions and it becomes just a, a nest of interesting practical questions of like, mm -hmm. oh, we want to make this grandiose experiment that will measure asymmetry in electroweak interactions so we can know if there's another like W boson that we don't know about. Like weird mm -hmm. standard model questions that are like big brain, cool physics. Yeah. But then what you're actually dealing with day to day is like, oh, how do we build this thing using the least money? How to build the tools to build the tools to build, figure out yeah, the thing. Yeah, like how do, how do we, how do we uh, create a data structure to contain all the information we're going to get uh -huh. from this? And how do we build a, like a computing network that can handle uh -huh. that much <laughs> information at once? And uh -huh. how do we simulate it? And how do we... Uh, build the physics engines required to make those simulations realistic and give us some degree of confidence that this billion dollar experiment will actually work and um especially because uh now that i'm in plasma accelerators a lot of the motivation for plasma acceleration is that you can make high energy accelerators very small uh -huh. and compact and so that could save a lot of people a lot of money but it's like it's interesting because it's something that a lot of physicists are excited about. Like, I went to a nuclear conference, and when people heard that I was working on plasma acceleration, they're like, oh, I hear you guys are actually pretty close. And they're so excited because it has the potential to create more opportunities for big physics questions to be answered. Mm -hmm. Because you can build more experiments. You have better tools to you do You have more. better tools. Yeah, yeah. So... And and then it's got the kind of directly marketable ideas of you could put a particle accelerator in a hospital mm -hmm. and and do, like, cancer treatments that way and get high-energy beams of heavy isotopes and all this fancy shit that other smarter people than I are thinking about. Um, but it's interesting to see kind of what question you actually end up figuring mm -hmm. out like focusing on because because when i went into physics i wanted to answer all the big questions of like oh what's beyond the standard model 
is the like is super symmetry actually gonna be a thing <laughs> and is like you know all all the complicated big uh, kind of almost philosophical physical questions mm-hmm. and then what i actually end up working on is like how do i handle this much data <laughs> mm-hmm. well it's because that's what pulls you in is the yeah you know? I, like i feel like it's a way that you actually lose a lot of young scientists in a way mm, it's because they're not prepared to they're not prepared the to get the practical questions and they like they get enticed by the the grandiose questions and then find out that's not what they actually get to do. Mm-hmm. But it is what you get to do. It's just in a very windy, in a sense, you, complicated yeah. way. You're contributing to the mass of scientists that are working towards that one question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hard part's figuring out what's the most effective thing i could do to get towards this question and where's my niche what can i work on that no one else is doing right now that's true that's a good i feel like that's sort of a, a uh, an orthogonal concern it's hmm. well although i guess you'd need a niche to yeah. do the work so yeah. that is a practical yeah, yeah everyone needs to find their niche like yeah. I, I'm, I'm in quite a niche right now i'm literally the only person working on what i'm working on right now it's a good place to be which in. is it feels weird and terrifying and very exciting yeah um but you can i mean there there are there are smaller niches and bigger niches like right now i'm in a very small niche mm-hmm. um when i worked on like big nuclear experiment design i um was in a much uh well it's it's complicated cuz in in one ways you could say that my niche is bigger now because i am one person working on more things versus my when I was working on a larger experiment with a bigger team of people, my niche was smaller in that I worked on a very very specific problem. So you had a very small sub niche within a relatively large niche. <laughs> yeah. Whereas here you have the entirety, <laughs> the entirety of a niche all to myself. So before you were inside a fish mm. in a big pond. Yeah. <laughs> but and now you're just no, in no, a small no. pond, and you yeah, are the fish. I'm, yeah, I'm the one fish. Okay, I'm one of like four fish mm-hmm. in a small pond. Mm-hmm. Right now, whereas I used to be inside of the biggest fish in a massive pond. Yes. So, I think I like here better. <laughs> yeah, it's nice not yeah. to be in fish. Yeah, not to be swallowed whole. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've talked to some people that that have had that problem when they go to big labs, like people who that will, that will go work for CERN. And that's like a lot of young physicists' dream is mm-hmm. to go work at CERN because that's where a lot of like big big physics has happened there Uh um but you feel so minuscule because there's so many brilliant people there that the problem you end up solving is it seems like you're the only one that cares about it even though everyone at that lab depends on all the little problems being solved by Uh other people so it just depends on your mindset going in if you're like a aggressively independent person you probably wouldn't love it yeah, but, there's definitely something to be said for smaller. Yeah, it's like cog cog in the machine kind of mindset at at big labs doing big experiments. Yep. You're going you're going to LBNL next next week? Oh no. Uh, yeah. LBNL? Lawrence Berkeley National Lab? Or no, no Liver- Lawrence Livermore. Livermore. Aren't yeah. they both Lawrence, right? I don't know. Isn't it Lawrence Berkeley I know it's and in Lawrence Livermore? Because that's where I was looking on Google Maps for hotels. <laughs> um Are you at liberty to say what you're doing there? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they were being very secretive. I don't know how secretive I'm supposed to be, mm. but uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's uh, 
I don't know. It seems it seems cool. I don't really know. Yeah. Hmm? Sorry, big news in physics just happened. Oh, are, are all the all the physicists tweeting about it? Wait, let me check academic Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I just gotta fact check something before I speak of it. The anticipation is killing me. But well, for about a, a year or two two years now, mm-hmm. there has been the question of where the next electron ion collider is going to be built. Mm. Um it's, it's complicated. So <laughs> an electron ion collider requires two things essentially of a lab. It's, it needs an electron and beam and it needs an ion beam. Yeah, that seems reasonable. So the question when when physicists kind of as a whole decided that was the next direction we needed to go solving certain big physics questions um the question came down to are we going to build it at jefferson national lab where they have a big electron beam (laughs) or are we going to build it at brookhaven lab which has a big ion beam so either one you're going to have to add a whole new like beam system but like and which one are we going to pick so it's been like two years of the department of energy like people putting out studies about how the design will work at either lab because they're different shapes and mm-hmm. systems and spaces and all that, all detector things and complicated. Sounds like a messy decision. Um. So wait, so is there news? Have they decided? Is it the big reveal? I think the big reveal has happened. Do they have the like tarp thing and then they pull oh, it, it off? Oh, it happened yesterday and I fucking missed it. <laughs> oh, whoops. Uh, January 9th, 2020. Today, the U.S. Department of Energy announced the selection of Brookhaven National Laboratory as the site for the planned major new nuclear physics research facility, the nice. Electron Ion Collider, uh, to be designed and constructed over 10 years at an estimated cost of between $1.6 and $2.6 billion. We'll smash electrons into protons and heavier atomic nuclei in an effort to penetrate the mysteries of the strong force that bind the nucleus together. Yes, we know this. You want to see nice. a, a fun picture of it? Oh, dear. Here's the Brookhaven design. It's a bunch of wiggly lines. Good lines, though. Yeah, pretty good lines. There's so much cool niche engineering that goes into that machine. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, man. Oh, it's going to be electrical. It's going to be just logistics, getting everything cooled and stuff. It's one of those things that just, like, here's here's why I like working on big physics machines. Mm-hmm. Because this is not something I had anticipated. Like, when I, when I went into physics, I thought, I, honest to God, I thought I'd be a theorist. Mm-hmm. and mathy things doing more yeah doing more mathy things lots of chalkboard kind of big think uh-huh. things but i think i love the small think <laughs> and, like because you get to build something you get to build something and it's not even that i want to build things with my hands because god knows i'm shit at circuits <laughs> but it's that idea of a 10-year project to build one big machine with, like, thousands of people working on it. And it's so complicated that you need, like, hundreds of people with PhDs in physics to build one machine that's just... It's it's massive. It doesn't make any sense. And it's just, like, a magical thing that, like... And it makes you marvel at, like, the human collaborative mindset of like why did we do this 
Yeah. We can't because we can. <laughs> we just did. We spent billions of dollars on it. It was pretty cool. It's so cool and weird. And yeah. it's such a part of my life that's like been very consistent for the past few years that I forget that people don't think about particle accelerators all the time. <laughs> like if I ever get like downtrodden on like how humans are trash, I think about how many scientists work to build big physics machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something very uplifting about it's it's just it's just people working together. It's yeah. just wholesome. I know. It's like it's it's, uh... it's very much like not competitive mm -hmm. pure collaboration mm -hmm. that i feel like is hard to come by in i don't know a capitalist society but like eh, but yeah i don't want to always say like mm. I, I think just any society is gonna yeah, be any society is complicated gonna be messy i think i but... think yeah but like scientific research is uh, mm -hmm. at least the way that i've seen it so far is one of the most purely like wholesomely collaborative, collaborative and... environments uh -huh. Yeah, it is. It's it's pretty nice. It's cute and it's nice. pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exciting. EIC mm -hmm. being built at Brookhaven. Yeah, it's very local. It, I go, mean, go visit. Will it be local for long though? Walk walk your dogs over to the. Oh, you super can't. Collision chambers. Whatever. <laughs> super can't do that without security clearance. Um, um, if you had a pet spider, you could do it. I saw it in a movie once. Yeah? There was some, some spider fella that went to... Huh. Hung out in the collider. <laughs> Spider-Man? I sound like that. <laughs> spider person. Spider person. Um, Arachno individual. <laughs> hmm. Is this one of those awkward pauses you were, you were saying you had to cut out? Well, necessarily i keep some of them it's a thoughtful there's a difference between a thoughtful pause and an awkward pause it's a good point it really helps things sink in yeah yeah just take a silent moment for the listener to contribute their own thoughts out loud where we can totally hear it yeah <laughs> oh really that was very insightful yeah good job listener yeah yeah oh you don't say <laughs> Uh, so I yeah. feel like you don't say is the weirdest thing to say to a person who said something. That's true. <laughs> it's it, it gets to me. It gives me a chuckle. It's it's a, it's a good word for that. It's like, oh, you don't say. Like no, I do say. I just said. Oh. <laughs> uh, yep. It's a good time. Weren't we supposed to be talking about... We uh, It doesn't matter. It will this, go whatever that, direction fair. it does go. Meanders. It, it meanders quite a bit. Meanders. And there's, there's generally no quite direction that mm -hmm. we have. Um, like, we'll have we'll have some more focused episodes, and then we'll have some more all-over-the-place episodes. But we try to stay away from, like, the boy bands and all that. Yeah. You know, like, there's not one direction to... <laughs> i'm sorry i apologize i, I hurt uh, you knew what you were getting into. i knew it i know i that's i feel like every conversation i have with you i'm just i'm i'm like vaguely waiting and you'll say something i don't quite get and i'm like i'm just gonna go with this because i know it's gonna turn into a pun 
And so yeah. I just wait for it and see what comes of it. it sometimes it's quite good. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. It, it's the anticipation, it's, really. Yeah. It's, the... it's, it's not the pun that brings it on. Well, it's... no, the puns are very good. Oh. <laughs> they're, they're high quality. <laughs> oh, you, oh, you don't say. <laughs> they're... <laughs> uh, that's true. I really don't say high quality puns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunate. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's the, the lead into them where you're just wondering what's going to come of the conversation. And then it mm-hmm. is a pun that you've been leading up to. And well, you're like, Oh no, <laughs> it's even better when like, like the person thinks they just missed something. Mm-hmm. They're like, wait, what, what was that? Sorry. I, and like, like taking it seriously and trying to like work through, like, what are the consequences of that statement? <laughs> that doesn't seem to, that doesn't quite seem to jive with the previous conversation, but mm-hmm. like, there must be some meaning to that, right? So what are, what are you trying to say? And then there's this moment of realization where it snaps over to like, oh, God. It was what? a fucking pun. Uh, I've been duped. Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah. Anyway, that's your daily dose of literary theory. Oh, yeah? Of wordplay. Okay. I mean, you know, you, you wanted to inject the arts into this. So this I'm just... This is true. I have my own literary background mm-hmm. of, uh, of of lots of puns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's literature. Mm-hmm. The art, the art of the spoken word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's both theater uh, and and literature because it's it's a word play. So it's really. <laughs> you know, I was at I was at a a dinner slash like networking event this week, mm-hmm. and like we had to. You, I mean, icebreakers in and of them in and of themselves are kind of horrible because mm-hmm. you have to try and reduce your existence to like four <laughs> facts. Yeah, that's true. But what's worse is that th- so we did like a general generic icebreaker of like who you are, what you work on, mm-hmm. whatever, and then we did a mandated game of true truths and a lie, mm. which is the most wild way to introduce yourself to other humans is let me tell you something false about me and like i feel like i i very much am a person who values candor and so like trying to think of a lie about myself is so hard Mm -hmm. and so i was sitting there like (laughs) um the 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 person who was running the event like got the immediate reaction of like oh god we have to play two truths and a lie for like the entire room and she's like okay so like go get your second like round of food and think about it for a bit and then we'll come oh, back no. in like 15 minutes and actually do it so you've got uh. time and like so many people were like writing it on their phones so they could figure shit out and so <laughs> trying to think of a lie about myself was like one of the hardest things ever and I always, like, consistently, whenever I have to do that, I find any fact about myself that involves a number. And I raise it or lower it by, like, one or two. Uh, and that's the easiest thing I can think of to lie about myself. See, yeah. Well, see, the thing with truth, two truths and lies is, is that it's not just any lie. There's It needs to be a good lie. It needs mm. to be an interesting lie. It needs to be interesting but believable. Yeah. Um, but if you're someone like me where, like, a lot of the shit that I could pick as my truths is not very believable content. Yeah. It's... <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like there's an interesting difference that happens with two truths and a lie, whether you play it with friends or you play it with strangers. Yeah. Because with friends, it's how well do you know your friends? Yeah. With strangers, it's... Like, what... 
Yeah, yeah with it's, strangers, it's, it's an odd balance of I want to impress these people. Yeah. And be distinctive. But I don't want to be an asshole. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, like, mislead assumptions about me. So I want mm-hmm. to pick truths that are honest to myself. Obviously. And interesting. And it's, in- and it's interesting. the elevator pitch thing. Yeah. It's, it's the... the it's the compress yourself into two interesting mm-hmm. facts and then tell a weird lie about yourself. Like it's just such a wild way to introduce yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let me real quick spend fifteen minutes thinking of something that's not true to tell you about myself. Right, and then you have to think about what are they going to read into it? What are they going to read into the into it? Assuming it's true, mm. what are they going to read into it? Uh, once they realize that it's false, and, and what like, are they going to realize read into it that you picked that lie? Mm-hmm. It's, Even though it's false. Yeah, and it's yeah. precisely the kind of thing that I will viciously overanalyze. Yes. About myself and about others. Like, honest to God, though, when other people, like, give their two truths and lie, I couldn't give two shits about what they're mm-hmm. saying. Like, I barely even play the game where I'm just listening. I'm like, okay, cool. Because it's usually like, I have three dogs. Just kidding. I have a cat. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, like, was, like, four different people's... Mm-hmm lie of choice with a lie about their pets or their number of siblings or all this shit. Mm-hmm. And so it's generally very uninteresting mm-hmm. to play two truths and a lie when you're not the one lying. But yep. then picking truths and lies about myself to share was so nerve-wracking. Like I, I'm pretty sure my hands started shaking because I had to open my mouth and tell a lie to a room of strangers <laughs> which is hard yeah oh so if you don't mind me asking mm. um would you would you feel more comfortable telling those two truths and a lie now that you've practiced you've had a moment now, to oh, pick now them. that i've practiced i yeah. can't even, what did i choose um and if they're lame don't tell them but now you have to make the decision of whether oh, okay. they're interesting whether uh i don't think they were that interesting uh-huh. Well, there are some easy ones. So I, I, my go-to is I have a pet snake named Mattress. Mm, that's pretty good. Because it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I chose this this time. I feel like I never. I don't have a go-to to the truths and the lie. Mm-hmm. So this time I chose. Um, I was a a published sewing pattern author at the age of twelve. That's true. Which is true is, and weird. It's very weird. It's very. It's. It's good characterization. Like, if you introduced a character in a book, I that'd think, be a good, a good thing to put And it was him. worthwhile in this circumstance because I had already given my, my elevator pitch, essentially, where mm-hmm. people knew that I was a, a particle physicist. Right, so and, now you gotta give them the counterpoint. Yeah, giving them counterpoint of, here's how crafty and odd Yeah, I, I also I have interesting be. nuance. Yeah. <laughs> to my nuanced interests. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then my lie... I lied about how long I lived in Texas. <laughs> like I said, I lived in I I lived in Texas until I was fourteen. And then it, and it plays into the fact that it, like at least in a room of Long Islanders, I don't sound like I'm from Long Island, generally. Really? Or from New like New York City? I I'm trash at these things. Yeah. So. Well, so. It's just that thing where you you bring up the thought of, like, maybe this person grew up somewhere else, and then they're, Mm -hmm. like, listening to your voice a lot, and then it's like, I don't, I don't know. She doesn't sound like she's from here, but, like, Texas? And I was born in Texas, so it's easy to lie about. Mm -hmm. And I, like, I lived there till I was six. So, like, I'm not Texan, and I'm not Southern, 
But you got a bit of it. But I got a bit of it. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> I think this came up in another episode. But I, like, if there's one word that I actually genuinely have a little bit of a southern accent on, it's biscuits. That's true. Yeah, that'll I, do it. I feel like. Yeah. It doesn't come up in conversation enough for me to be distinguishably southern. I feel like biscuits is a very British word. I think of it as a like biscuits and gravy. I don't think I've ever eaten biscuits and gravy in my life. Oh. So. Now there's like a a buttermilk. You're right. I a guess. buttermilk uh-huh. biscuit. Oh God, the the butter also. It's yeah. Got the, it's got the. It's, got a, it's right there with your grits and your like uh, fried okra. I've eaten none of these things ever in my life. I know. So. And and a lot of it is like I I don't really eat oh. them either, but but my my mother is still very much like from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it's embedded in your like childhood yeah, foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like very Cracker Barrel, <laughs> sweet tea. Uh, I saw a Cracker Barrel when I went down on the on the on the road trip to mm. the south, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I'm in the south now. That's oh, cool. No. Yeah. Well, because I've never been. I know it's 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 different. I guess, but there are, there are Cracker Barrels in New York. I don't think I've. Aren't there? I don't think I've, I don't think I've seen one personally. There's probably a few because there's usually a few things scattered around. But it's like you have to go look for it and yeah, yeah. go there. I don't know. Cracker Barrel is like classic for me as a kid who like whose family is like vaguely southern mm-hmm. and who did a lot of road tripping. Like mm. I spent so much of my childhood driving far long distances or or sitting in the car long distances. Where where'd you guys road trip to? Um, like moving or like move moving to or? an extent. But when you move a lot, you end up going places a lot because you have friends in lots of places. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my family is very spread out. So going to visit family is always an elaborate ordeal of like, are we driving to Georgia? I guess. (laughs) And Kentucky and all over the place. But I also, um, I don't know. I feel like my family was just of the mindset that if there's a thing that we're going to do, we're going to go there to do it. Mm -hmm. And so like, especially like as a... As a young person, I was an Irish dancer for about 10 years, competitively. Oh, right. Is... You mentioned that. You keep having cool backstory that I keep forgetting about. <laughs> this is my life. Welcome. Yeah. But yeah, so I, like, I was competitive. And when you're a competitive anything, you travel for yeah. it. So we we drive. Well, on... if you're any good at it. I wasn't that good at it. But... I mean, clearly good but enough to... But also, like, especially by the time I was in like middle school and high school, I lived in rural upstate New York. So like, you have to drive to get anywhere. I see. But... Yeah, that's fair. But I'd spend my weekends driving three or four hours to a competition, spending the day there, and then driving back. But, and, and then, like, my siblings all went to schools far, farish away. Like, for college? For, sort of yeah, thing? for, for yeah. college. And so I just, I spent a lot of time in the car growing up. But what that means is you end up going to a lot of the places that are on the side of highways, which means Cracker Barrel. Yep. Yeah, that'll so do So I've been to, I've been to many a Cracker Barrel, which is funny because now i'm like a vegan northern adult and i don't think i willingly step foot into a cracker barrel because i can't even eat anything there you need the biscuits oh no, no they'd I be can't. milk they're, and they're eggs full and... of butter oh yeah yeah i mean same actually i can't eat anything there either because yeah, it's yeah, all full of flour you're so non-glutinous we can we can go traveling somewhere and, and... not go to cracker barrel yeah that sounds like a fun activity. Let's go on a road trip and avoid all Cracker Barrels. <laughs> it would be pretty easy. <laughs> we might need more rules to just define an adventure. Yeah, it's it's a little too easy mm. in this part of the country. It's always, it's like, I mean, it, 
I, I've already had an episode where I rambled about being vegan for like 10 years, but, mm-hmm. but, um, it's interesting. Travel- Wait, were you rambled about being vegan for 10 years or were you rambled about being vegan for 10 years? Um, cause it's an important distinction. I think the first one. Okay. I rambled for 10 years about yes. being vegan. Mm-hmm. I've only been vegan for like three and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but regardless, I, it's interesting traveling with, with, yourself and with others with dietary restrictions because like a lot of people say like it will ruin things like i know i've I've met a few people that are like i'm vegan except when i'm traveling internationally and then i'll eat the like local foods Mm -hmm. but i feel like if anything it forces you to be more adventurous in in where you go and where you yeah find things so like i i went to london being vegan and with a friend who's pretty severely uh gluten intolerant Mm. so we we did a lot of research beforehand, but we went to a lot of really cool places because of that. Mm-hmm. We we probably explored more of London because of that than because of a desire to explore London. Yeah, it's like well, the next restaurant we gotta go to is like across town, so it's time mm-hmm. to walk through the streets of London for like two hours. Yeah, well, just cities because you have to. Mm. You need something to. The way you interact with the city is by doing other things in that city. Yeah, yeah. So having more things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I went to New York. Uh, I I very vehemently dislike New York City. We've we've discussed this. Yeah. You're not it's happy a, with me about it, but I, it, you know, it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, but mm-hmm. it is interesting now that I live closer and I am more of an independent adult. Mm-hmm. That my experience of going to New York City has changed. Like as a kid, when you go to New York, it's like a kind of like vacation thing for me and my family it was like an adventure yeah we're going to new york to see a show on broadway or Mm -hmm. all these things but this week i went to new york uh for a dinner and to go fabric shopping which is like i feel like every time i go to new york for an actual reason it's a different experience Mm -hmm. than going to new york for like touristy things or yeah i mean yeah, I mean, I'm kind of biased about the touristy things because <laughs> yeah. I grew up there. Yeah, yeah. So like the touristy things are always like, ugh, those people. Uh, so and I was always very like disillusioned with that. But yeah, it's it's definitely different. Yeah. Also, sorry, I cut you off. But how how exactly was it different? Would you say? Oh, New York. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like now, mm-hmm. like I know that I don't like New York. Yeah. But I value the things that it has in it. Mm-hmm. So when I go to New York now, it's with distinct practical purpose. Okay. So, like, and I, like, I like a lot of the museums, too. They're so, pretty good. Yeah. When yeah. I was a kid, going to New York was, like, visiting a place you'd seen in the movies a lot. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And usually when I went to New York, it was for a show. Or it was for, um, like, a birthday. I remember I had a birthday, and I went to, um, the like, the American Girl shop that they have there. Oh. Like the dolls. Because I yeah. was into that when I was, like, nine. So I remember driving to New York for that, for a birthday. <laughs> yeah, but I think it was just this kind of, because it was visiting a city, it was this mindset of, like, oh, you can you can kind of, like, eat anything you want or go to any kind of store you want. And when you're a child and you're very materialistic and mm-hmm. self-centered and unaware of, like, systematic problems with a lot of cities, <laughs> you, you you go and it's kind of a magical thing. Cause it's like mm-hmm. going to the mall, but it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. 
Um, and you've seen it in movies. Yeah. So, like, it's that kind of thing. It's exciting. Yeah. But it's, now, um... when I go to New York, I have a distinct reason to, mm-hmm. as an adult, and I feel like half the time my goal when I'm walking through New York is to seem like someone that doesn't give a shit about the fact that they're in New York. I mean, that's what most people who live there do. Yeah, you you walk around with purpose, and you roll your eyes at the tourists, and mm-hmm. you would be like, I'm trying to get somewhere, and you're in my way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that kind of thing. And I just try and, I like, I go into New York City these days with a grim determination to get single <laughs> things done. Uh-huh. And so... It's it's usually the reason I've gone into New York is for like an event that I have an obligation to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this week was my first one of my first times. Obviously, I had an event that I had an obligation to go to in New York, but I also like had a thing that I wanted to accomplish there, which was to find cool fabrics mm-hmm. in the garment district and like for yourself. Yeah, for yeah, myself. Yeah. So it was it was a different experience. But then I got so overwhelmed by options. <laughs> That I found nothing that I wanted and came home empty-handed. Oof. But... Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It's so, a common affliction. I know. So, I've... I... How do we start talking about New York? <laughs> I don't know. I blame you. I I blame me for most ways this conversation is turned. That's true. Because I'm uh, just kind of going. I've had a weirdly long week. I feel like I just... I'll talk about anything at this point. Yeah. And it's winter break, so I'm like, I spend so much time alone that whenever I'm like given an opportunity to sit down and have a long conversation, I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah. And I don't care what we're talking about. Got to stave off the cabin fever somehow. Yeah, I know. I like, I couldn't go for a walk today, so <laughs> we're gonna talk forever now. Yeah. Ugh. So, do we want to try to see if we can come up with some cool way to tie this into? stem things um well i don't know it's up it's up to you so, and it has to be a tactful segue so uh, so this is true very very carefully planned out do you have a tactful segue in mind uh of course but i uh <laughs> you know like we, we should we should think about it a bit first to um <clears throat> yeah i don't know uh <laughs> okay good point fair enough I was talking with someone mm-hmm. while I was in New York. I was talking about how much I disliked New York mm-hmm. with someone who also disliked New York, but had the unfortunate circumstance of having a job there. Mm. <laughs> Do they live in the city? No. She commutes in. How far? Like two hours. My condolences. Well, like an hour in and an hour out. So, oh, so, well, it's not so as it's bad, not as bad, but still. But, um, but we were talking about how, because I am... Mm-hmm. doing big physics machines mm-hmm. um the likelihood of me living in a like actual metropolis is significantly decreased that's true because you can't build big physics machines when there's also other buildings in the way yeah <laughs> so like places like like uh brookhaven and los alamos is like a classic example of like it's just the middle of the desert mm-hmm. like <laughs> The only people who live there are the scientists working on the big physics machines, mm-hmm. which is kind of fascinating. It's I want cool... to visit yeah. and see what like the town is like, because mm-hmm. it's a town established and run by like science people. Yeah. Or I mean, I guess probably other people come. Oh, to, yeah. Like, yeah. Other set people up come in because there's, there's like gold rush style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, it, but the civilians, mm-hmm. the, the populace of like the town, I guess it's like in Los Alamos. Mm hmm is is majority science adjacent mm-hmm. which is so 
dislike most populists. Yeah, populi. it's really cool. Pop, so, uh, yeah. Popul- pop- I think, actually would be right here. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. No. But probably accurate. I don't know. Um, but... <laughs> um, mm-hmm. That I think that would be interesting to see mm-hmm. how it differs and how it's the same. I think it wouldn't be as different as you think. It's just more science memes around. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's really cool to have science memes around yeah, i don't know this is true um i mean i may be biased as a science as it as as science <laughs> i am uh yeah that's what they do when when, when they have you on like a, as a guest on the show to tell them about torque and, and things yeah i say you know bob jones science, science. yeah <laughs> science man oh man i um I find it really fascinating how that works, being a scientist in the public eye. Mm. Yeah, it's weird. Well, because often what the public sees of scientists is this, like, image. A mostly false one. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, Matt and I have discussed this uh, in vague terms in the past, but how frustrating it is that the thing that makes you so passionate about like your research mm-hmm. specifically like all the fascinating little problems that you puzzle over for weeks and then get so like that rush when you figure it out uh-huh. like all that shit is stuff that you could never communicate to the public mm-hmm. effectively without giving them all the background that you had that made it fascinating mm-hmm. yeah i wonder this is an interesting question because i've seen this uh mm-hmm. this particular question with like uh, this comes up when talking about, like, math teachers mm. and, like, how to teach math to children. And, like, you know, some science people talk about this, I think, as well. But it's the, can we teach science in a way that gets at that core, at mm. the, like, curiosity and excitement? Without the prerequisite background? Or even just, like, you're not going to be able to explain to someone why plasma research is cool and exciting without all that background, but you can explain to, like, a kid who's learning math why math can be cool and exciting, Mm. right? And, like, instead of teaching it by rote, teaching it by, like, oh, here's how you play with these sorts of puzzles and, and, like, Mm. it's a thing you can figure out on your own and, like, because that's not the way math is taught generally. Math is taught in this sort of rigid thing and that's why most people hate math. But Mm. they don't hate math in the sense that, like, we understand it probably. Yeah. Uh, And, like, mathematicians understand it. Uh, but they hate math in the way that it was presented, which is as this. I had such a frustration with with math education mm-hmm. throughout like middle school and high school that I wrote. I literally wrote essays on it. But you just wrote essays for fun. I wrote essays for fun because I'm a dweeb. But <laughs> I um uh. I I remember writing a a certain subset of those were dedicated to how much we were wronged by math education mm-hmm. at least at least my math education because i am someone who's very passionate about math mm-hmm. but i had seen the ways in which i had been like done dirty in my <laughs> math education because there were parts of it that i hated i had some i had some horrible math teachers there mm-hmm. were math a lot of math classes i didn't do that well in mm-hmm. and so by the time i found out i was passionate about it i was just so sad that i'd missed out for so long 
And I, I was sad that I couldn't communicate it to my peers because they didn't get it. Why I, why I found math like fascinating and cool <laughs> yeah, and interesting because it's already been ruined for them. Like by the, by the time I figured out that I liked math, all, everyone I knew hated it because of the way it had been taught. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit Plato's cave mm. sort of thing. Or that may, might, might not be the right thing, but it's the, you know, there is this amazing world of cool stuff mm. and most people don't know it's there and you can't, because they only see like math as it is taught in school, mm -hmm. which is a fun <laughs> thing. Uh, and it's really hard to communicate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, physics is the same way. The, the physics you learn in, in high school that most people are first exposed to is not the physics that you do as a physicist. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and it's, this, this whole thing is an interesting conversation. It's the... Because, like, you don't need to appreciate math mm. to use it as a tool. Like, if you're going to be an accountant... Mm. You're not going to be doing math for math's sake. You're going to be doing math for... Accounting sake. <laughs> right. It's a tool to do another job. And mm -hmm. then the interesting stuff happens in, like, the domain of accounting. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't know anything I'm about gonna accounting. I'm going to get angry, <laughs> angry mail from accountants now. But, uh, <laughs> but right, like, the, the thing that you're working on, the thing where sort of the there's interesting depth, uh, or at the very least, the thing you're most directly working with, is not going to be math. Math is just a tool you use to get there. So mm. should we be teaching people or trying to teach people the, the cool essence of math or, or should we be tool. giving them the tool? Yeah. Um, and like... Yeah, and the yeah. and the people that we interact with as researchers in physics or in math are the people making the tools. Mm-hmm. So... And they have to have... So they have to have the... Yeah, they have to have the essence of it. Uh-huh. So it's... It's, are you the one who uses the tools, or are you the one who builds new ones? Mm -hmm. And Most people don't. Most people you don't. You don't need that many people to build yeah. tools. And I think uh. it's uh, it's kind of one of those big topics that, that, like, throughout the scheme of this podcast, we've come back to again and again of that. How do you... How do you be a productive scientist without losing your re relatability to your people outside of science every single day? Because what you do day to day as a, a pure academic researcher is not relatable content to anyone besides other academic re researchers. So you pigeon your mm. pigeonhole yourself into a bubble of people that understand completely what you do, but can't communicate outside of it. So how do you? How do you? develop as a young scientist without isolating yourself from the general public yeah well i think so to some extent that's not science's fault it's because yeah like to some extent the people who are going to go into science were probably big nerds before anyway <laughs> yeah <laughs> and big nerds already have this problem by just being big nerds being well being into like things that the i guess not everyone is into and like ways of thinking mm. that are th this is a, this is a contentious topic but like i've i found that the the nerdy friend groups i've had to have a different approach to like what is interesting and mm. playing with the essence of things and like <laughs> trying to redefine things and overthink stuff 
Um, and groups where that's not the dynamic, if someone comes in and tries to be like, well, let's think about the definitions of words, because like, what do they really mean? Uh, <laughs> you're, they're they're going to look at you like, what? Right? Yeah. And so that feels like a very similar problem to the like, it's not that your work is very specific and people don't understand it. So how do you, how do you maintain relatability? Mm. Um, it might be to some extent that the sort of thing you're doing is not relatable. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of times I think a lot of it has to do also with, with our system of education and like in the sense that as someone who was educated in the arts, I feel like, well, not educated in the arts, but like, you know, I, it was an emphasis throughout like my early education. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting how that, that kind of like pure passion for like understanding and communicating things has transferred into science. Mm. Um, because like I'm, I'm someone who grew up, you know, loving to write and, and communicate. I, I like not verbally, God fucking no but like i would i would write like essay length emails and i'd write novels Jesus. and i'd i i uh -huh. loved to i love to try and try and give other people the kind of feelings that i was trying to invoke you know that like and so now that i'm like a practicing scientist and my my day-to-day -day experience is that much harder to to make something relatable and invocable. Mm. It's such an interesting thing to tie in that kind of childhood passion of just making yourself understood with a... Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, with a, with a niche field that that is inherently isolated and mm -hmm. hard to understand. Yeah. Interesting. So one thought is... So, like, I mean, to some extent any field will have this problem, right? Like, if you're yeah. a car mechanic... Yes, yes, yes. Like, you're not going to be able to to talk about the... <laughs> he tries to like, pick up car example. <laughs> I I am not a car mechanic. Um, yeah, yeah ex I, I know exactly what you mean. But, right, you know, like, the jargon, the sort of details of what you're working on. Um, but it's the uh, that interplay with people's day-to-day -day lives that makes it inherently relatable. Like, you can, be a, you can be a mechanic and speak your mechanic jargon with other mechanics... When you go home at the end of the day, your family that is not mechanics understands the kind of shit that you've done in your day. Well, is it because they drive cars and they see that all the time? Sure, but like, what if you're like an electrician, right? Mm -hmm. Like they see they don't interact with it. Like it's there, but you don't think about it. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe something even more esoteric, like, uh, what are jobs? What, do, what do people do if they don't go to grad school? I mean, this is something we discussed, I think, mm -hmm. in 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 one of our earlier episodes where. Um, where people in the media are mm. seen as very popular careers for young people to want to pursue. Like actors yeah, and, and that sort of thing. Actors, YouTubers nowadays, TikTokers, mm. I suppose. I don't know. I mean, influencers, but, the new Yeah, like, like Hollywood an influencer. Star. So, so so because it's so visible. Mm. And so being a scientist, you are for the most part invisible to the public. Your 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 communication beyond your immediate social circle is limited mm -hmm. because the only thing that you make yeah. public as a scientist is work intended for other scientists to read so thought experiment mm. let's say we had a job that's not very visible 
mm-hmm. but it's comprehensible, right? Like, mm. I don't know, maybe you like handle logistics at uh, some some service that people don't know, regularly interact with, but they're like, oh, that probably has to exist, right? I feel like that's what YouTube holes are for. That's true. YouTube's really good for that. YouTube's great for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember as a kid um, watching a YouTube video about the person who knit the tiny sweaters for uh, stop-motion movies. And I uh. thought, that's a job I never thought about a person doing. But it, it makes sense because I know mm-hmm. that people knit sweaters on a large scale, so they must need to do it for mm-hmm. things that are miniatures. But it's it's that kind of niche thing that does eventually get picked up by media in the end. Mm. Because I feel like there's a um, a public fascination with niche jobs. Mm-hmm. But as so long as they are comprehensible. Yeah. You don't find, like, wired features on YouTube about the nitty gritty of what a physicist does. Yeah. I wonder if that's due to the material or due to the processes. Like. Or the people. Or the people. That's true. Be all of it. <laughs> but like, you know, like if you do some not very visible job, like knitting tiny sweaters, but knitting is pretty comprehensible. <laughs> yeah. Right? The process is like, I mean, I'm sure it's harder, mm. but I mean, it's, it's knitting. It's making a thing with your hands. Some mm-hmm. people know how that works roughly. They have an idea of how it works. Yeah. So one kind of jobs is you're doing comprehensible work, but for not very comprehended or well-known purposes. Mm. And the other is you're doing work that everyone sort of is aware of to some extent, but they don't understand the processes involved. Mm. Because I think, right, like you were saying the example of um, what is the nitty gritty of being a physicist? Well, that's talking about what is is the process of being a physicist? Mm. What do you do in your day-to-day life? And And it's this weird process that people Mm. maybe don't, because I guess most people don't do research. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a process that's not constant also. Because as a researcher, your day-to-day work is not day-to-day work. It's You work on yeah. it for a few days or a few weeks, and then you move on to the next thing. It's sort of inherently not definable. Yeah. Because... It's amorphous. And... The moment you define it, you've solved it. So yeah. it's done, and you go on <laughs> yeah, the next yeah. thing. The job is to define it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's an, an, an interesting puzzle in mm-hmm. science communication yeah. that I think about a lot. And so I imagine... So here's a thought. Hmm. Um within this framework that we're creating of <laughs> comprehensible professions. Being an engineer mm. should be much more comprehensible than being a researcher. Yeah. And I think it is. Do people generally know what engineers do? Yeah. I They know... I, I feel like they know in a more honest way than they know what mm-hmm. a physicist do. So we had an episode, and early on, our first guest was Charlie... Mm-hmm. And who is an electrical engineer, uh, more on the research side of things, but still. And we talked a lot about how really near identical physics and engineering can be. Like, if you're on the experimental side of physics and on the a little more theoretical side of engineering, you're essentially doing the same job. Mm-hmm. And yet, because the intention is different, where the physics, the intention is to, like, solve these fundamental physics questions that you have mm-hmm. to know a bunch of theorems to... Mm-hmm. to puzzle out whereas in engineering you're solving more practical problems for the world and so we're gonna make a better x yeah so yeah. so it's easier to to conceive of so so media representations of engineers seem more honest mm. 
because and, and like i think of it like architects like everyone understands what an architect does yeah they draw cool pictures of houses and then yeah. they make the real houses. and like everyone also knows that there's like a lot of math involved in mm-hmm. measurement and some engineering and structural mm-hmm. design everyone like has that kind of concept that that's involved but and then to a degree the representation of an architect say in in any sort of media is relatively honest because mm-hmm. you see them working on their br- blueprints and making measure- measurements and making scale models and mm-hmm. maybe doing some math. Yeah, I don't people know. don't like showing math. But People but, don't like showing math and but people it's, don't it's... like showing code. So, which is like 97% of what I do. Yeah. Man, <laughs> if, depictions of software and media could be a whole entire podcast. Oh my God. Podcast. No, but anyway. we'll be here for 10 years. Uh-huh. But. Well, it's good. You have a lot of content. Yeah, you know, it's I know. It's I know. I'm, I'm thinking ahead, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Next time. Um. Yeah, so whereas for research, because it's so amorphous and changeable and complicated and relies heavily usually on math and things that are visually also visually mundane, mm-hmm. um, because it's like, yeah, you want to record what I do day to day? Like, look at me sit at my computer and, like, be frustrated yeah. for seven hours. Pacing the hallways. <laughs> yeah, like, going for a walk so I can process why my plot doesn't look like I expected it to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. I calling mean, myself an idiot under my breath while I go on to Stack Exchange to realize why I don't know Python. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, that's a good portion of it. So it's like... Well, actually, the media is kind of accurate on that point, usually. The frustration? The Well, I don't know. I found myself, like, working on, like, a, like a project for class recently, and it was sort of complicated. And it was mostly me, like, sitting, typing a little bit, then, like, wandering around with, like, a concerned expression on my face, <laughs> muttering to myself and, like, pacing around, and then, like... I figured it out and they like rush over and type something and then I'm like damn this is... and I'm like wait that's all media <laughs> depictions of scientists shit yeah so maybe they do have it right maybe they do have it right it's just it, it always feels dishonest to me it's not a comprehensible depiction yeah it is a surface depiction mm-hmm. um it, it doesn't capture at all the subjective experience of it yeah because the subjective experience of doing like research is you're like navigating these complex problems in your head and like putting puzzle pieces together and like but yeah yeah and like we, we've been talking a bit this week about creative writing mm, um mm-hmm. and so i think it will be a fascinating challenge as a writer to try and depict depict the yeah. scientific process in an honest way that is uh, comprehensible to regardless of who's reading that's an interesting prompt i know and i kind of wanted to act on it that's par- part of my plan for this weekend because mm-hmm. i'm a dweeb but um so i was gonna um like try and portray that kind of the the uh, like that's i mean that's the point of this podcast is portraying the human element behind the science mm-hmm. right but trying to make it intrinsically relatable to people outside is mm-hmm. one of the hardest things that I've had to do as a person. Yeah. Like, I can't, I still can't do it. All my friends are scientists and researchers. And if I try and explain why I love what I do to people outside, they can get that I'm passionate about it, but they don't understand why and they don't find mm-hmm. it interesting. And so yeah, it's hard to to have those struggles without it becoming a joke. Like, literally, I'm, I, I'll be sitting at work and I can, I can work on my research while I'm at my job because mm-hmm. it's just like a lot of downtime. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be sitting there staring at a plot for literally like two hours Mm -hmm. just thinking about and like looking upset (laughs) and thinking about why my plot is the way it is and if i'm doing science right and 
and people will come up to me and they'll be like, like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And you look really frustrated. And I'm like, I'm just trying to figure out why this plot looks wrong. And it's that concept that every scientist in the room would, would immediately get like, oh, yeah, like, that's fucking frustrating. I get you. But then everyone else is like, what a mood. It, it sounds like a joke. Mm. Although I get a lot of laughs out of that. They're like, have fun with your plots. Like, <laughs> like I literally all the time. Oh, God. Yeah. No, I can totally see that. And, yep. and like, you get into, um, mm. to, like, some of your freaky math stuff, and it's, like, just drawing shapes and thinking about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it can be easy for people outside to think that's a little bit hilarious and ridiculous. Because it is kind of ridiculous. Because it is kind of ridiculous, and it, that's uh, kind of what's amazing about it. And mm-hmm. so the challenge of trying to communicate the the kind of almost, like, simple and pure humanity behind the scientific process mm-hmm. is is really fascinating to me and probably um not very uh i don't know how to phrase that it's it's difficult it's nigh impossible <laughs> to to, yeah. to be able to communicate well in a way that is interesting to any reader i do think so for a slightly different tack on this, not to a, not explaining it to a reader, but conveying it. Mm. So I've thought about this a bit. Yeah. It, I mean, it's also relevant to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I've thought about this a bit. Mm. And especially in the context of like teaching. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, if you want to convey the process of science and sort of the feel, the subjective experience of like solving problems and thinking in 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 that sort of way Mm -hmm. well conveying that kind of that's the hard part of teaching i think or at least hmm, how do i phrase this i found that when i try to explain things to people like helping people with like math or, or or problems or or whatever i think sort of my goal is to get them to figure it out on their own is Mm -hmm. to coax them into and I'm not very good at this because it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> but it's it's to coax them into the headspace where this stuff happens, to coax them into the headspace of, mm. like, oh, there's something there. I, yeah, I yeah, see yeah. I see that thing. Maybe, I, I bet I could put these things together. Let me try it. <laughs> right? Because that's that's the process. That's yeah. the... And, yeah, and, and so how to explain a concept to people that frames it in this way. And I think people who, who know how to, you know, like like researchers, if you get to, to being a researcher, you've gotten pretty good at forcing yourself into that headspace. Mm-hmm. Like when you see something presented, you're like, all right, okay, they're presenting it terribly. But how do I, how do I, how do I frame it for myself mm-hmm. in that way of like, okay, I can see things fitting together. I bet I could play with this. Um, mm-hmm. But most people I think aren't used to that. Yeah, it's a, definitely that, it's a break from that mindset of like, I do or I don't understand this or mm-hmm. I can and or I cannot do this mm-hmm. to the kind of is like playful yeah and and questioning and curious mindset that that most mm-hmm. researchers will, will kind of have and that's mm-hmm. why they're researchers now yeah it's, it's because a... so much of our job is to look at a like for me physics is communicated solely through plots mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'll look at a graph that I don't quite understand how my system has produced this graph. <laughs> and uh-huh. I'll be like, that's really weird. Uh-huh. And then I'll, like, the fir- your first instinct is, I don't understand why it is this way. Uh-huh. 
because that's everyone's natural instinct is like oh i don't get it why is it like that Mm -hmm. but then you have to stare at it for a while and force yourself to think like well how could i understand it and then you create five more plots with like different different tweaks to try and understand the real source of why your plot doesn't look like you think it's gonna look like Mm -hmm. and that's the scientific process not Mm -hmm. the big data and fancy words the why is it like that and how can i figure that out well Mm -hmm. i wonder if i tried it this way Mm -hmm. and i wonder if i replotted only including this subset of the data Mm -hmm. and what that part's doing yeah yeah. so i can understand what the rest is doing like that little let's take it apart Mm -hmm. play with it mindset that i think um researchers and inventors and artists have in common Mm -hmm. to an extent and yeah. I think everyone comes, it's part, it's part of the human yeah, process. I, so you were actually, you were saying like the big fancy words, everyone mm-hmm. thinks it's the words and the, and the numbers and the data. Mm-hmm. So I've uh, noticed that when, when explaining things, if you say, okay, here's, we're going to talk about this thing. Mm-hmm. Here's thing A. Here's thing B. Uh, thing A means this and does these things. Thing B means this and does these things, right? And so you introduce the jargon first. Mm-hmm. You introduce, introduce the names for things first and people get put off. Yeah. And I found sort of the most successful I've been in explaining concepts in this way and the most uh, successful sort of explanations I've seen other people make for Mm -hmm. this sort of thing is when they frame it as, okay, uh, let's just talk about things you know, Mm -hmm. right? And let's try this thing with this number or let's try this thing with, you know, whatever, whatever sort of domain you're working in. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's try this and see what happens. And okay. And that's weird. That thing happened. And that's kind of interesting right and let's try it again and with this number it also happens and that's kind of weird yeah right people are like okay sure it's a thing whatever and um, then you call it thing a right and at so at the end yeah, yeah at yeah. the end right and and the process like before you call it thing a you have to make people make the conscious decision to look at it and say that's a thing <laughs> um and coaxing people into making the con- like there's a lot of these coaxing people into doing the science thing mm-hmm and the science thing in the form of noticing a thing that looks weird or like noticing a pattern because mm-hmm. people like noticing patterns. Oh, yeah. That's what you do. You just have to frame it right. That's the whole thing that they talk about uh-huh. why so many scientists are good at music because it's pattern recognition. Mm. And a lot of the underlying thought processes are very much the same. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is when you get into like an academic setting you open your textbook what do you see it's a table of contents saying precisely what everything is called first mm. like you open your textbook and it says okay this chapter we're talking about i don't i don't even know like fucking time dependent perturbation theory God. so you start the, t- the chapter is called time dependent perturbation theory so you open it and that's the first thing on your mind and you think okay so now what is that which, like, as a, as someone who's already been introduced to physics and the science of it all, mm-hmm. you can still kind of bring yourself to that excitement of, like, oh, I wonder how this works. But to someone from the outside, when, when we're so focused on that kind of textbook mindset, mm. coming into it, mm-hmm. you don't see that and want to find out more. You see that and want to memorize it and move on. Mm. So Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a learned thing. It's a learned helplessness thing. Yeah. I always I think a lot about how I would write a textbook, mm. and and I think a lot of a lot of academics get to that point where you think about writing a textbook and how would I do that, and then you know it's too late for you you're you're too far gone yeah I know it's uh but yeah, yeah by the time by the time you get to the established point in physics where you are capable of publishing a textbook you are no longer 
in the headspace of an undergraduate trying to remember why they liked science in the first place and why aren't they a business major? <laughs> They'd make so much more money. <laughs> but, so, yeah. So I'm trying to think about that early on. Maybe mm-hmm. write some notes about how I'd how I'd do things mm-hmm. differently now more so than later. Yeah. But there's some very good textbooks. There are some wonderful textbooks. And like when you read a good textbook, it does that thing. It does the okay, here's thing here's here's let's let's play with this concept. Let's mm. do this concept and that concept and look a weird thing happens. And they they do that sort of walking you through the, the case study. Yeah, like of. noticing the pattern, noticing that that's interesting. And and sort of tricking you into making hypotheses and, and, and hy- you know, theorizing about what it could be. Mm. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. Eh, doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I definitely it's, you have to, you have to learn to trust that textbooks can be good. Yeah. You, you lose it. Uh, and sometimes. The trust? Yeah. The trust of textbooks. Mm-hmm. I, I get very much disillusioned with my texts because I, physics, because it's physics, and it's got such a deep root in like that kind of like classic academia, you know, mm. where it's just like big think hours and it's all like fucking galaxy brain guys <laughs> writing textbooks. And Ugh. like, do you know how many physics textbooks start with some kind of philosophical bullshit about how like physics is God and all this shit? Like it's nasty. And so you get so disillusioned with physics textbooks because they're so, like, they feel so elitist and Mm. unnecessarily complicated. And, Mm -hmm. but then every once in a while you find a good one. And I think it happens more and more as you get into, like, graduate level texts because you just have the base knowledge to find the fascinating things in it. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely, I'm, I'm overdue for a good textbook these days. I'd really like one. Yeah. I've had a strain of, vaguely shitty ones for a while mm-hmm. well it's communication's hard yeah it's really hard yeah it turns out <laughs> yeah like it's not a trivial thing um, yeah wow how how and, how'd you know science yeah. communication difficult and i mean not not just in science not in just general, in science communication but... is like the hardest thing to do as a person yes <laughs> yeah that's why it's really satisfying mm-hmm. in science when you when you manage to communicate effectively with someone because it's the <laughs> It's like the thing we're talking about with, you know, like where you're staring at a graph for a while. Mm-hmm. It's not that you're staring at a graph. It's that there's like this this there's complex landscape, but it's so all in much your head. information in there. Yeah. And and like meaning and interrelationships. And when you can talk to someone else <laughs> and be like, hey, you know, that thing in your complex landscape, like that's really hard to talk about. Here's what it is. Yeah. And right. And being able to communicate mm-hmm. something and have them be like, oh, yeah, I, I understand that. I see that. It's really it's. Uh, it's really gratifying. Yeah, I like it's... I I know there have been multiple occasions where I have like sent you a text of a graph mm-hmm. and be like, "Look at this cool graph I made," mm-hmm. and then I'll spend like fifteen minutes giving you the background you need to understand why that graph is cool, mm-hmm. and then like you being you, you you get it pretty quick, and then you're like, oh, "Wow, that is a cool graph," and I'm like, "Thank you," because <laughs> it's. <laughs> Especially oh. because I'm in my my own niche, mm-hmm. um, it's so hard to like. Ex- all my graphs come with so much subtext mm-hmm. that I understand, but like even my advisor forgets, <laughs> and so I have to oh. re-explain. Like yeah. the captions on all of my figures and my presentations are like very explicit. Like this is what this is in the context of this whole system, mm-hmm. because he forgets a lot, and I have to remind him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so I like it's so like. 
exciting when someone else gets that graph you've been staring at for nine hours trying to re- understand like why it is interesting and how much how much actual mm-hmm. complex information is stored in a fucking png mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah systems are complicated yeah. systems are like yeah i think i'm trying to say something entirely too vague and profound okay uh, so i'm gonna <laughs> Uh, it's not gonna end well. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna cancel that. Just edit that out and post. It'll make okay. me seem more. more okay. Um, I'm gonna. No, I'm definitely keeping it in. <laughs> Just kidding. Fair enough. Oh man. Um. Well, we could probably wrap up. Actually, we've been going for that's quite true. A long time. How long is this? Been? Um, we're at like an hour and forty five minutes. Oh Jesus. Um. But uh, a lot of that was in the beginning. That's when true. That I will not actually be in. So I guess we're probably at it like an hour mm-hmm. and twenty. Um. So we should wrap up, but then we okay. also have to rewrap to beginning and record an introduction because we still never introduce yes. who you are. Yes, that's true. Um, all right. So do we want to like do a conclusion? Oh like, yeah, we should. We should vaguely conclude. I ever since we started adding in introductions, I keep forgetting to end it because we just record straight into the introduction, and then I'm like, wait, we never ended the podcast, so we have uh-huh. like a couple episodes that literally just end, <laughs> just abruptly in the middle yeah. of a conversation. It's really. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's really cool because roll credits. <laughs> oh, we got outro music. Don't worry. Oh, nice. Um, nice. Um, well, things we generally like to end on is a plant update um, <laughs> because we're spreading in stem and I have a fern hanging right uh, between our li- line of sight. It's very thematic. Yeah. Yeah. So so this fern has been around since the, the um, inception of the podcast and it is not dead, but it is not looking well. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it's just winter, and it's a fern indoors. It's just not going to look great. But it's it's not dead. Mm. So I, I'm happy enough with that. Don't look too close. But <laughs> uh. um, other than that, I have departed with my uh, my gifted plants. I, I had six plants that I was nurturing to give for gifts to my family. Oh, right. Yeah. That's, when it, that's when the room looked like a... Yeah, it like was a, a little forest. So now they're uh-huh. gone, and I feel they're in... in Tense need to replace them. Yeah, honestly, that like it was so good. There's something missing now. I know. Well, now I'm growing some microgreens. That's true. Um, which is nice, but they're gonna be. I'm gonna eat them in like two days, probably, maybe even less. I might eat them tomorrow. Terrible fate. I know. So sorry, little microgreens. But you're so. They had it coming. I know. They they were asking for. (laughs) Um, but that's the plant update. Um, we're back for 2020. That's this is the first. We've, yeah. we've taken a two-week break, which is yeah. weird for us. I mean, it's a good time to take a look back on sort of where we came from. Yeah, I know. Seeing as it's... I'm, I'm just not going to make a joke. Okay. <laughs> I saw where it was going, and I was like, oh. <laughs> so I'm glad. Um, it's good foresight. I... Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Okay. <laughs> um, but Matt will be back soon. As much as you have been a wonderful Matt Standen. You'll return to your regularly scheduled... Matt Murphy. Matt- matting? I don't like that. Materialism? <laughs> yeah, hopefully... I don't, I don't know, in a week or in two weeks? I don't know if next episode he'll be back from his adventures in Europe, but we will see. Um, and I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. Or you know took care of themselves if it wasn't and that's enough we usually we end on a see you next week 
even though it's a podcast and no one can see it. Hear you next week. Yeah, but it doesn't work. I don't know. I'm like, You'll I, hear us next week. I made fun of Matt like the first episode for saying see you next week or like something like that. And so mm. it's just kept going. So we'll see you next week. <laughs> and that's the end. <laughs>